0: Litigation has really sharpened the focus. It has put this policy problem and the kind of solutions we need at the very top of the agenda. It is not just that we have a massive public health problem. We have a massive public health problem that is careening toward a necessary solution. And whether we're going to get that in the legislatures or in the courts, all involved seem to agree that we need to do something.
1: That was Professor Gluck. Welcome to Briefly, a podcast by the University of Chicago Law Review. Today, we are discussing the opioid crisis and different legal issues created by it. My name is Megan Kogeshall, and I'm an online editor with the University of Chicago Law Review. And with me is
2: Jeremy Rosansky and Chris Hurley.
1: Chris and Jeremy are also online editors with the Law Review. This is part two of a two-part episode. Part one considered the criminal justice system. We've interviewed Keith Humphreys, Esther Tang Memorial Professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, who served in the Bush and Obama administrations, and Abby Gluck, Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Solomon Center for Health, Law, and Policy at Yale Law School. We interviewed Professor Gluck and Professor Humphreys on separate occasions.
2: The opioid crisis has many fathers, well-intentioned doctors and opportunistic pharmaceutical reps, unwitting patients and criminal users, Mexican cartels, and Chinese manufacturers. The severity of this opioid crisis, the number of addicts, the number of deaths, is a result of a change in medical practices in the last few decades. I asked Professor Humphreys about that change.
3: It's very clear why we got an opioid epidemic. And it was a change made in the 90s, essentially, to corporate strategy and to the regulation of these products. And this is really the the irony for, for a legal audience about this epidemic. We've had plenty of epidemics that were started you know, in uncontrolled black markets like methamphetamine and cocaine. This epidemic was started in one of the most putatively regulated markets in the world, which is American health care. Uh, and despite the fact that there were many people who should have been minding the store, they failed to do so. And what happened was there was a at the time in the 90s, there was a lot of concern about untreated pain in America, which is a legitimate concern. And that uh, humanitarian concern among patients, among families, among uh, medical profession was co-opted by uh, the pharmaceutical industry to mean that everybody just needed to be on more opioids. That was the solution. And the you know the most famous company for this is Purdue Pharma, which had their drug OxyContin. They just had one drug. They had more marketers out there promoting it than most companies had promoting every single product that they made. And they and similar companies, you know, convinced a lot of doctors that. The humanitarian thing to do was to start prescribing opioids far more broadly than they'd ever been prescribed before, and that we didn't need to worry about addiction, that these new opioids like OxyContin were safer, and you could prescribe them freely and raise the doses, and things would work out okay. And that drove, over 20 years, a near quadrupling, uh, almost a quadrupling of the number of prescriptions, um, which peak at about one quarter billion uh, opioid prescriptions a year. So that's enough for every single person in this country to be medicated uh, on opioids every four hours for a month. That's the level of exposure. And one thing we know in public health is whenever you have massive exposure to any drug, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or heroin, you're going to get more and more people dependent on that drug. And that's what happened.
2: Have there ever been any analogs for this kind of litigation?
1: Yeah. So the idea of using civil litigation in response to public health crises isn't new. It's been tried in the past in response to things like high-fat foods, um, various types of pollution, and even as an attempt to um, control gun use. So the closest comparison to the current opioid litigation is the tobacco settlement from the late 1990s. The use of civil litigation in response to the opioid crisis started in the late 90s. um, And over time, Professor Gluck explains that plaintiffs have tried different tactics and have brought in different defendants as the problem has changed.
0: So in our article, we identified uh, what we think are at least two waves of opioid litigation. The first one was largely before 2013, 2014, when the extent of the crisis made this a much bigger national issue and led to a different strategy. Those early lawsuits were sometimes brought against pharmaceutical companies, as well as doctors operating what were called pill mills, large-scale pain distribution uh, centers. Those cases were largely unsuccessful. Courts did not allow plaintiffs to proceed in charging pharmaceutical companies uh, with illegal behavior, uh, in large part because courts were focusing on the very long chain of causation between the time uh, a pharmaceutical company manufactures an opioid and a patient takes it. There were just too many intermediaries, whether that would be the doctor who prescribed it, the patient who might have used the medication, uh, the distributor who distributed it, uh, to hold that the pharmaceutical manufacturers uh, were the direct cause um, of an addiction. To this, in the same way, doctors themselves were often not held directly accountable because the FDA approved the drug as safe. The doctors arguably dispensed the drug. Whether the patient abused the drug was another matter. And courts were unwilling to um, accord large-scale liability to any of these parties. Um, It must be said that as part of the first wave, there was also a lot of stigma about addiction. Many courts basically said that um, dependence on opioids was illicit or illegal conduct, and they were unwilling to hold businesses or doctors accountable when patients, quote-unquote, got themselves addicted. That kind of stigma led to a lot of early losses in the first wave, and it was not until the extent of the crisis became as dramatic as it did around 2013, that an entirely new litigation strategy emerged. You know, the major difference in the second wave of litigation is actually much wider net cast for defendants in the second wave. Uh, Plaintiffs and prosecutors move beyond just targeting individual doctors, pill mill operators, or pharmaceutical manufacturers to target all sorts of defendants down the chain, whether CVS, McKesson or distributor, even hospital accreditation agencies that were advocating for aggressive treatment of pain in the 90s when pain was severely undertreated. On the plaintiff side, there are some new plaintiffs. The most important set of new plaintiffs that have emerged are state and local governments. There are still individuals suing, but in many ways, the most powerful lawsuits in the, in the numbers have come from hundreds of cities and counties bringing lawsuits as well as um, huge number. I think more than half the states at this point are involved in investigating or suing. That has made quite a difference.
2: Doctors, as well-intentioned as they are, are are vulnerable to to pharmaceutical reps. Um, And this is something Humphreys really emphasized, that there's been a failure of the American medical establishment to properly train doctors to prescribe the right uh, medications for pain um, and to uh, properly uh, handle pain. What changed is having
3: many, many people being handed bottles of pills and going out into the world with them and saying, use this for your toothache, for your sore back, for your bad knee, Um, and that explosion uh, is really where we got into trouble because when you get to that point, the risk-benefit ratio for opioids starts to shift and the risks are higher than the benefit. It's also very important to mention this. A lot of people don't realize opioids aren't that great for pain in the long term. So, um, you know, there's many, many trials showing they're very good on a short-term basis. But when you start getting out past three or four months and people get dependent on the opioid, um, it doesn't have the same effect that it did before. I mean, this will scare people, but, you know, the average doctor in medical school uh, gets about seven hours of training about pain which compares unfavorably to veterinarians who get about 50 hours of training about pain. So, you know, doctors know a lot less about that, and they know probably even less still about addiction, and that makes them, you know, uh, I don't want to absolve them of responsibility entirely, but they were, in a sense, sitting ducks for, for in-person visits, for, you know, of persuasive people telling them how great these new drugs are, and they, you know, made a lot of decisions that I, I know for a fact that many of them now regret very severely.
1: Cities and states have spent a lot of money trying to combat the opioid crisis. Um, they've spent a lot of money combating addiction by administering naloxone, as we talked about in the last episode, um, and trying to help people get access to treatment. The governments are plaintiffs, so they're just trying to find a way to recoup the cost of those treatments by going after pharmaceutical manufacturers.
0: I think the first set of lawsuits was pretty small scale, both in terms of what kind of recovery was sought and in terms of the kind of defendants. Uh, that were targeted. As the opioid crisis took on this massive public health emergency, quality, the uh, extent of the damages far larger, and so defendants with deeper pockets were necessary. I think also as that emerged, you got some very entrepreneurial plaintiffs' law firms that started going around and finding plaintiffs, uh, including cities, localities, as well as individuals, uh, to represent. That led to larger-scale litigation against deeper-pocket defendants with new theories of legal liability.
1: Professor Gluck explained the new claims that plaintiffs are bringing.
0: There are racketeering claims under federal law that are being brought. There are a whole bunch of state law claims um, that include nuisance and fraud and negligence and state statutory claims. What's novel about the claims um, is the extent of the reach of the lawsuits So. Plaintiffs are suing those involved all down the chain of causation. So what's more novel about this wave is the way in which plaintiffs are trying to impute liability, sense of responsibility for watching the movement of opioids to an entity like, say, CVS. Um, They're using theories of state law to derive those duties of care, um, the duty not to create a public nuisance, uh, the duty to monitor the flow of controlled substances in a responsible way. And that's a new phase of this litigation.
1: Instead of individual plaintiffs, there are now more states and local governments involved.
0: So what's really important to understand about this wave of litigation and what makes it quite unique in the opioid crisis, although not in the uh, scheme of massive litigation in general, is that almost all of the cases, hundreds and hundreds of them have now been consolidated into one federal court uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. That has happened because of a statute, the multi-district litigation statute, which not a lot of people know about, but it's a very important statute that allows what are effectively parallel federal claims that don't necessarily group themselves naturally into a class action to be aggregated in a single federal court for pretrial resolution, and even settlement. So that's what's happened now. Those claims are before Judge Dan Polster in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, There has been initial discovery, and just last week, the very first magistrate report and recommendation on the first round of motions to dismiss came down, and by and large, it allowed these cases to go forward. So that report and recommendation is sending a very strong signal to the defendants that the court is not likely to dismiss the claims. Now, under the M.D.L. statute, the, uh, the M.D.L. process, the district court judge will review the magistrate's report and recommendation, and it's always possible. Judge Polster will disagree with his magistrate, but those who've been watching the process think that's unlikely, and the report of last week is going to send a strong signal to the defendants that these cases are going to go forward. So a settlement seems, you know, certainly in the cards.
2: We asked our guests to examine the role that congressional and administrative action can play in ameliorating the opioid crisis. One of the things that Professor Humphreys emphasized was that um, as a medical fix, treating addicts is relatively straightforward. Um, It then becomes an administrative question of of how to uh, divert uh, addicts into the kinds of treatments that have been proven successful. So this is the
3: one good thing. I mean, if anything
2: could be good about opioid
3: addiction, say relative to cocaine addiction, is we actually have multiple medications that work pretty well. Uh, Methadone, buprenorphine, naltrexone. Uh, And it's a question of getting them into the hands of doctors and also then getting them provided to patients. And there have been a lot of challenges there that is focused on the legal challenges of insurers not necessarily covering all these medications. There's been tremendous progress on that front. 2008, the Congress passed the Wellstone Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, which covered large employers and said that any benefits they offered for addiction and mental health care had to be, you know, at parity with those for other health conditions. The Affordable Care Act in 2010 expanded that parity to small businesses and individuals and applies it to all the health exchanges around the country and to the Medicaid population and also defines Addiction care is what's called essential health benefit so that every plan has to have at least coverage, some coverage for addiction treatment.
2: Right. So though they're not necessarily mutually exclusive, one reason to prefer litigation is that um, the levers of regulation can become captured by uh, powerful interest groups, specifically the pharmaceutical lobbies, the American Medical Association, or, or groups that have a real stake in this matter. I see your point about and fears about regulatory capture. But with this kind of litigation, we really do just have unelected judge being substituted for the judgment of our elected legislators who are much more accountable to people on the ground. And there's an incongruity there why we should rely on an unelected judge instead of the people that we elect to act on our behalf.
1: But litigation can also force policymakers to act
3: state legislatures were also pretty uh, slow to react. Uh, and and I just to give you a suggestion as to why the um, Associated Press and the Center for Public Integrity evaluated over a 10-year period how much money was spent in, in lobbying by anti-opioid groups and by the pharmaceutical industry in American state legislatures. And the The anti opioid groups, which tend to be things like, you know, families whose child had died of a Vicodin overdose or something like that, spent $4 million in that decade total. And the pharmaceutical industry spent $880 million. So the industry had very strong influence at the state level. And states are actually where a lot of medicine is regulated. And that's another group, I think, that should hang their head and really, you know, rethink how they they got to that point.
0: The opioid crisis has a number of intersecting vectors and has proved quite intractable to solve at the legislative level. A large reason for that, quite frankly, is that what this crisis needs is money. Um, We need insurance, Medicaid and private insurance to cover the cost of prevention for mental health and addiction and for treatment. It's hard to get that out of legislation. 50 states, it should be noted, have legislated on the subject of opioids to a great extent. They've imposed restrictions on doctors. They've required doctors to check prescription monitoring databases before prescribing opioids. they passed Good Samaritan laws for those who call in overdose emergencies. But it's been sort of a scattershot approach. There hasn't been empirical measuring of what's working. Um, and there's a view that something more comprehensive is necessary. We just saw that Congress has a bill that makes some positive steps, but doesn't nearly go far enough to resolve anything. In large part, because it's not really throwing any significant money at it. And that's where litigation comes in. Litigation is going to get a lot of money from the defendants, the pharmaceutical companies, the distributors, intermediaries, and so on. And that's a benefit of it.
1: Litigation isn't a cure-all. Professors Gluck and Humphreys noted that there are still some concerns with litigation.
0: A drawback to litigation, one of many, is that You're putting the entire case in the hands of a single district court judge who uh, has a lot of laudable motivations and seems very smart. But, of course, he's just one person, uh, consulting with the experts that are in front of the court. The other concern about litigation is always where the money is going to go. The tobacco litigation a few decades ago had a lot of similar to the opioid crisis, and while it made many positive advances, it was also widely criticized for giving chunks of money to various states where, in many cases, that money went into the state general fund or wasn't directly targeted at the tobacco problem in the first place. I think that's part of the concern here. We don't know exactly where the money's going to go, what it's going to be used for, how creative the court's remedy is going to be. Um, There are a lot of state attorneys general involved. They want different things than, say, the plaintiff's law firms. They want injunctive relief. The plaintiff's want financial relief. Who's going to be in charge of that money? What kind of policy solutions are going to come out of it? That's difficult. The federal judge can't order the federal government to legislate. The federal judge can't order the federal government to force the 20-something states that haven't expanded Medicaid to expand Medicaid. But that's what has to happen.
3: You know, Purdue Pharma was found guilty in federal court, uh, fined over $600 million. And you might think that would have changed the industry's conduct a lot and forestalled future cases, but apparently has not, probably because the profits are so huge relative to that. So the most interesting thing to me to watch out of the case that has now all been consolidated under a federal judge is less so whether there's a big fine levied, because big fines don't seem to change much, but whether new rules are agreed to as was the case in the tobacco industry settlement. Um, I think without that, uh, the industry will write that check and go on as before. But if you put new constraints of things like you know, promotion of products uh, or ongoing liability in cases where you know, addiction continues to get worse, that could be a mechanism that actually helps turn the epidemic around.
1: Pain treatment guidelines have been revised and opioids are being prescribed at lower rates. There's also an expressive component for plaintiffs related to holding various actors responsible for their part in the crisis.
0: I think in this particular instance, litigation has focused attention on the crisis and basically set a time frame. Uh, the reason that's happened is from a confluence of coincidental events. Um, first and foremost, the consolidation of the hundreds of cases in one federal court under the multi-district litigation statute has been critical. If we had hundreds of cases pending around the country, it might be more diffused and haphazard now we've got all the focus, all the defendants, all the plaintiffs, almost all of them in one federal court. That has created a heightened sense of focus on the crisis and on the litigation. And we have a judge who has put a very aggressive time frame on a settlement. He wants a settlement within a year. That, in turn, has had a ripple effect. Knowing that that litigation is moving forward, knowing that there is likely to be a comprehensive settlement uh, in the next few months I do think that has had a role in spurring legislatures and the federal government to act. It also has caused some companies to take efforts on their own. Some of the pharmaceutical companies, for instance, have cut production of opioids or decided not to directly market them to doctors. All of these have had spillover effects. On the other hand, one could argue, and it certainly is possible, that the fact that these things are proceeding so aggressively in federal court might take the wind out of the sails out of other productive reform efforts. It seems plausible that the federal and state government will say, hey, we don't have to really deal with this now because the federal judge is going to solve the crisis and we're going to get a boatload of money out of it. Um, I think that would be a mistake. And the fact that the Senate and um, the House moved on their own bill in the last few weeks is at least some indication that they're not dropping the ball completely just because the litigation is ongoing.
3: We have to have more education of doctors, more education of patients. But you also need
1: tighter monitoring. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. This episode was produced by David Sandifer and Yosef Schaffel. Follow us on Twitter at Ushai Articles from the Law Review are available on the web at lawreview.uchicago.edu. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts and soundcloud.com slash The Law Review is happy to announce a new blog, lawreviewblog.uchicago.edu. If you're interested in contributing to the blog, please reach out. Thank you for listening.